In this episode, we continue our chat with Ian Hickey. I hope you enjoy. It's so frustrating, particularly from a lived experience perspective. Like you were saying before, you are the expert in your health. You are the one that's experiencing the feelings, the emotionality, the uh, effects on your physiology. And yet we're not able to access services that are truly tailored to us and actually address our needs and our wants. And I guess coming from when I first got involved with your work is... I was coming from a rural and remote background and I was having to travel three hours by train in order to access the decent mental health care. That still hasn't really changed, although roads have gotten better and trains have gotten a bit more, well, they haven't gotten more comfortable. They never get better than the South Coast. There's no train in my lifetime. There's still one we went to the Central Coast or the South Coast. Yeah, it's, look, pretty outlook, but very uncomfortable and some interesting characters. But Technology, like we've been saying, has now enabled people in rural and remote areas to access proper mental health care, to access those physicians that weren't previously in the room, to have them as part of their clinical care circle. And I guess now with your work with Mindaroo and the BHP project, which we followed on here, and as well, we're going to interview Frank Iofino on data and the empowerment that that can bring and and real-time tracking is that all of these piece together to provide better care for the individual, right? Better care for you. You. Not some person on average like you. You. And the more you put that data in, the more you collect that data, the more you demand that the system recognise you. Now, I would hope you'd be able to feedback. I mean, the thing about change also, change is a kind of wide cast about Medicare, big systemic things. But also it might be that the clinic you go to, the hospital you go to, you know, people are very sensitive to feedback. And I actually, I should have said, the other reason I really like mental health is I really like actually, when I was young, I spent a lot of time with professors of psychiatry and people who were really interesting people. Like they were engaged with the world, they were interesting. And most of the people who work in healthcare, I'm very glad I work in healthcare and I don't work in law or finance or other areas, and I won't say anything nasty about those people. Let me just say the people in healthcare, the people in healthcare on the whole, they're really nice people. They want to help people. They're quite, and, and, and a consequence of that, they're also quite sensitive to criticism, right? So if you say, I encourage, when I used to run, I don't do this quite so much these days, but when I used to run a team for a local area health service, I used to encourage every person who used that team to write a letter to the chief executive complaining about my team. They go, oh, we don't really want to complain about you. I go, no, 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 it's really important. Now, don't say Professor Hickey's a really nasty person. Like, that's not, don't say that. Okay, okay, right. Uh, or that I was late or that I would spoke quickly or just or whatever. Or, or I wish he wouldn't wear that coloured cardigan or something. Don't, don't say that. Just highlight the system thing. Just say, look, I'm very grateful that I received care, but... The following elements of care were a bad experience. Now, the reason I say this, and I say this to people with a problem and also their families, in a very important study we did with the Human Rights Commission back in, which led to the report called Not for Service in 2005 and six, which John Howard then acted on, I must say, consequently, in a large investment, one third of the people experiencing care, the consumers, if you like, the primary clients of care, said the care wasn't any good. And one half of their family and carers. Now, can you imagine any business 
Uber Eats, Airbnb, where one third of the users said it was rubbish. Oh, not rubbish. It was very poor. And one half. And what it tells you, I mean, I actually thought the families were more accurate than I think the people receiving care were more grateful. <laughs> the families were sitting there going, now, wait a sec. There are so many things wrong with this, which could be easily improved now in that hospital, in that clinic, in that, in that, now, which, which are simpler elements of what's going on. And if you pick up enough of that, you can make that hospital work better or you can make that clinic work better. Now, some of it does then depend on, on a secondary bit, the funding and the organisation, which needs to be taken up, another my preoccupation, at a regional level. How does that work in Western Sydney? How does that work in far north Queensland? How does it work in Bogota and Colombia? How does it work, you know, in Tashkent, in, Afghanistan, in uh, Uzbekistan? You know, like we can then start to deal with that, but at least it highlights the issues, but some of it, some of it is just entirely unnecessary and can be fixed tomorrow. And what is the real barrier taking place and what is the inadequacy in the system and what other things could we put on the ground, data systems, tracking systems, feedback systems to do that. Now, at the moment, we are still, I don't think I can even believe this, we can still, likely if you go place, you'll be given a paper and pencil form and an envelope to fill in and post the post, Australia Post to post and it'll go somewhere it'll go somewhere into a department of health thing and it'll have nothing to do with improving that place so like everything and know that we have changes over time i'm involved in another thing sam right this week i don't know if you remember but when we started in the national commission uh raised at the time by people very close to us jackie and others was the issue about seclusion and restraint in hospitals as a, with, this is something we just got a, in acute mental health care reduced wherever possible to zero. Okay, and then there are a lot of issues behind that. Just this week is a story in New South Wales in the children's hospitals in Sydney. One children's hospital have an incredibly high rate of physical restraint. Now, exactly the same story was reported in five years ago. I found myself in the press making exactly the same comment that I'd made in 2017. And New South Wales chief psychiatrist, he made exactly the same comment he made in 2017. He said, well, they're unusual. Did you guys just go see comment below? I did retweet the comment just to save myself saying the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) But in the meantime, here's the interesting bit. In the meantime, in response to that reporting, being transparent and open, that hospital improved itself and undertook a training program, improved the situation and seclusion restraint went down. Now, here's the interesting thing, it's gone up again, okay? So you have to continue to monitor, you have to continue to look. Now, if you don't have real-time systems coming back all the time, not just one-off or cross-sectional surveys, you don't know. So continuous, anything that's serious, any other serious business, human services, other things, would have it fed back, you can imagine. I mean, meaning if we were independent private businesses, most of these places would have been shut down. And I've been involved in a lot of discussions in my career. Should we really shut that community health centre? Should we really shut that clinic? Should that hospital really close? And people go, no, 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 no. We've just got to keep it open because at least it's there. And you go, oh, my God, this is like, is that really the reason, you know, or do we need to do something a bit more radical? Now, the thing about technology, of course, what happens, of course, is if you've only got taxis, you're just stuck with taxis, dirty, grimy, awful things that they were, pay the fare and you couldn't get them and you had to do what they said and be great. Rounding the fare up, overcharging. All that stuff. Okay, now Uber, other alternatives come along and then there's competition to Uber. I mean, you know, there's development and technology. What's sitting behind it? It's not about competition. It's about technology, about feedback. 
transparency in reporting. You know what you're going to get before you get there. I want to see, I want the 4.9 rated driver. I do not want the 3.2 rated driver. I know what the fare, I know what the fare is going to be, even if it's exorbitant. I can say, you know, that fare that was $20 is $90 for the next hour. I'm not taking it. You know, I can make decisions and I can get alternatives. Oh, you know what? I think I might walk down and take the train. You know, I've got, I've got alternatives. You know, I've got choice. And not only that, the experience then goes in. Now, not only that, behind the scenes, it isn't all about you. Uber's looking at its total performance. It knows that it can't afford to have someone like you have a cold meal arrive and run it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that goes into the feedback loop, right? Goes into the evaluation, but also the improvement, like you were saying. Right. And it goes to a systematic analysis of what went wrong. So in that individual cold meal you got, was it just really a one-off? That that driver, that deliverer, they nine, they got a 99%, but on one occasion they messed up. Or in truth, do they mess up, like mental health services, one-third of the time or one-half of the time? In which case, that is just not good enough. We've got to look at alternatives. It's not just a one-off. It isn't just unusual circumstances. It isn't just to be, don't worry, minister, it's all fine. Actually, it's not fine. It's like that all the time. And, in fact, sadly, my biggest... Oh, I don't know. I have many sources of distress. But if you look at these figures, about one-third of people who use services and a half of people, family and carers, hasn't changed since 2007. Hasn't changed. Fifteen years later, you get exactly the same results. So we are not involved in continuous improvement. The arc of progress is not necessarily always forward. Martin Luther King. You know, it isn't always it's just getting better. It's not just evolving to be better. In fact, as demonstrated by COVID and the demand and the change in youth mental health, the situation can have actually got worse while we're still got a steam engine trying to respond, or I would say a horse and cart technology-wise. When other people are flying in A380s, we're dragging horse and carts around the health system. We want, and, we've got, and we've got people who are very good at putting shoes on horses and repairing wheels on wagons, and they get paid a lot of money to do it. And, and they're going, well, oh, well, it's a very good job I've got. Okay, yes, but really? Are there alternatives? And that's the thing. I mean, for me, one of the biggest pet peeves is perhaps it's a good job that you have, but are you doing a good job of the good job that you have if you aren't actually doing the job that is needed? So another hero of mine, a guy called Norman Sartorius, previous head of the World Psychiatric Association and, and head to the WHO and whatever, and fascinating Eastern European man now in his 90s. He makes the point that those of us who are in these areas with specialist knowledge have got to spend some proportion of our lives arguing. He calls it fighting for mental health. There's an excellent little book about this, talking about the big system changes, not just saying, well, I saw 10 people today, I saw eight people today, I took care of eight people. Yes, that's true, and that is very valuable. But what else did you do to change the system that you're operating in? So that more people who needed that got it and it was better quality. The two things. The big challenges of increased access, like getting it when you need it, so more young people getting care, and when they get care, it's good care. Now, we've had a lot of in Australia and elsewhere, and I'm partly responsible for this, I'm glad to say, mental health awareness raising. Everyone knows about it. People got more language. We talk about it more. But awareness and access does not equal a good outcome. If I said to you we diagnose a lot more cancer but we don't do anything about it, You'd go, geez, that's a bit weird. Why would you be like, that's a bit weird? <laughs> we know about cancer. We diagnose it, but 
We're, we've done two out of three. We're good. We're good. Let's, let's call it quits. In fact, it's a very interesting ethical thing. World Health Organizations and UN have gone into this. You shouldn't screen for a disease that you're not going to treat, that it's essentially unethical, actually, to screen for something, to find something, and then go, ha, funny you got that, but we don't treat that. We don't do that. And in a sense, our national thing about awareness raising and having been the CEO of Beyond Blue and I'm very proud of the fact that attitudes have changed in Australia and we're very open with great political figures and sporting figures and arts figures talking about their mental health problems, their depression, come forward, huge campaigns, come forward, come forward, tell us all about it. But um, I didn't think we were going to treat it. Or you're going to have to, you're just going to have to wait. I mean, I'm a, I am a, as it's clear here, an ageing individual who's rather impatient. I don't wait for my heart care. I don't wait for my musculoskeletal care. There are systems, in fact, my heart care is the best example, of course, because people worry I might something dreadful might happen if they ignore me. <laughs> Although yeah. some people might prefer it. I might stop talking if I, you know, drop. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Ian. <laughs> Some, some might think that was a good out. Some. But fortunately, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very grateful to my dad because, you know, he had, did train another generation of cardiologists who were quite happy to take care of me. So thanks, Dad. Um, yeah, so I just, yeah, exactly. I just go, go okay, they go, yeah, yeah, okay. Now, now because, because sometimes the thing you've got can kill people or go really badly, you can come immediately into our system, straight to the front of the queue in any emergency department, and no way are we letting you get away until the problem's at least made safe and then you're on a road to getting it sorted. Now, constantly what I think, many things, Sam, that upset me, we have a lot of people in our current mental health system who go, well, we, we, we provided some care. We did the best we could. I go, do you say that to people with heart attacks? Do you say that to people with cancer? Look, we diagnosed the cancer and I've given you some aspirin. And that's the best we could do. That's what best we can do. Interesting go, I don't think so. Now, the question is, the question is, at the consumer end, would you know, do you know, or do you accept because the doctor said that or the psychologist said that or somebody else said that, is it true? Now, the other thing I love about the other thing that's changed in my lifetime, of course, is the internet. Do you know I was sitting in um, North Carolina? Uh, I was sitting in North Carolina in uh, the 1990s. Harkness Fellowship was a great thing. Went to the United States with the kids and and this thing called the internet got invented. And this email, 24 hours, it was linked with many other things like email. And, and you could suddenly start, you didn't have to go to the library, you could suddenly look things up, you could find things up. Yeah, you didn't have to go to the world books for something. When I grew up, another thing my dad did was buy Encyclopedia Britannica, right? We had them. We had a whole set of them. Well, yeah, and, you know, because at least there was somewhere you could yeah. go. Now you can just, They're now dust collectors. Google it, mate. I think they, you know, yeah. you know, you can actually find out all sorts of stuff. Wikipedia is actually full of good information that's updated. So the democratisation of information, great. So now we also need people who are receiving care to go, no, hang on there, doctor, or hang on there, doctor psychologist or whoever you're seeing. I don't think that that's the full range of options available. So a lot of the work I've been involved with consumer organisations over the last 20 years has been Smart people using the internet to go, I don't think that my local service or my state is actually providing the full range of treatments. Even more interesting in Australia, a lot of our public hospitals 
provide only a very limited range of treatments. They don't provide a whole lot of the treatments, new treatments, TMS, ketamine, new drugs that are available in the private system. Could you imagine if we said in cancer care, okay, there's a whole lot of really interesting new treatments, but they're out there in the private system, but your public hospital, oh, we don't we do not do breast We don't do breast cancer. No, no. doesn't kill you that quickly. We don't do it. Uh, this week we've decided not to do lung cancer. I'm sorry, we're only doing diabetic coma. Yeah, I mean, if your diabetes has a major comatose, you can't come in. Yeah, if you well, that's that's a problem with our health system, right? Is you have to be unwell enough to receive care. And the more pressure on the health system, now the health system is worldwide now developing countries. It's all my fault and people like me. As people have longer lives, okay, life expectancy has gone up dramatically over the last 100 years. And as you go up, as you get older, you get more stuff, okay? Life's hard and you accumulate stuff. And what do you want? You want more treatments for the stuff so I can go to work every day and have these conversations with you. So I've got to take more stuff, use more stuff. So I'm using more of the health system like everybody else. So the ageing population uses more of the health system. The health system's under more pressure. Guess what? Guess who gets left out? Young people because they're not having heart attacks. They're not generally having cancer. They occasionally have road accidents. They occasionally have other stuff, but mainly they're not using up the healthcare dollar. And mainly we're not building the facilities and we're not building the care systems that are relevant to their needs. Whenever, if you're a health minister and you want to be popular premier, for God's sake, go build a hospital and go open a new one, you know. <laughs> and who will be the beneficiaries? People like me, older people, you know, that were surgical waiting lists, hips, eyes, knees, backs, heart. Now, I just want to talk about consumer activism here because one of the most best examples of consumer activism is actually breast cancer. Breast cancer nurses are going, now, now, look here, breast cancer treatment for the treatment bit itself often is quite good, and in Australia it is very good, but the experience of care is not very good. Breast cancer nurses, McGrath Foundation, other things, a huge amount of consumer advocacy. Now, it's interesting because now, now, now a lot of men with prostate cancer and lung cancer go, it's not fair. Those women with breast cancer are getting more. <laughs> I go, guess what? They actually spoke up. They got organised. They, they stated what needed to be done. Now, in mental health, we're very lucky to have people like yourself, Sam, and others who are prepared, but we do need new voices, young voices, engaged voices. We don't need to fight amongst ourselves the over-medicalisation, this versus that, the psychosocial versus the clinical. This is just not helpful. What is helpful is what do we all need to do? What do we know? What do we don't know? We need we need research to help us to find better treatments and prove us. But right at the moment, we also have things that do work that are very poorly organised. So... I would say what is also critical in our area and not well known is the variation in care. Some people get really good care and some people get terrible. And it isn't always got to do with how much money they're spending either. Some people paying a lot of money are getting rubbish care and they don't know it. Some people, some people through other charities and through other areas and through our ordinary health system are getting quite good care, but it is good. Now, we need to be able to show we don't need a one to five star rating. We need a one to ten star rating. We need to contrast the 1%. I was once part of a national health group that looked at outcomes from cancer care across the country. And you can see if you lived in central Melbourne or central Sydney, your cancer care was much better than you lived in central Queensland or rural Victoria. Kevin Rudd, to his credit, said, hang on a second, we can't have that. And billions of dollars went into a regional cancer delivery plan. The treatment had to move to where people were because people's lives were being lost. Good data drove it. So the outcome data and then the experience of care data. We need to track those things. And we need a 1 to 10. If you're getting a 1, you need to tell us where it is and who they are. Now, it's not you're dobbing them in, okay? You're not doing that. And then 
and some will be under local control, but some will be system-wide that needs things to be there and to be enhanced. We need to find new ways of solving that problem. Some, surprisingly, will be a 10. So going back to the children's hospital example I had in Sydney recently about seclusion and restraint, one children's hospital in the east of the city had none, virtually no seclusion and restraint. The other had the highest ever recorded. Now, they're both children's hospitals. So what is one doing right now? The other's not. So when people say, oh, it can't be done, they go, ah, excuse me, just cross South Dowling Street here in Sydney and um, right there. Now, you know what? So here's another funny thing, and people think I'm a bit odd when I say this. What you actually need to demonstrate is that somebody can be a lot better than somebody else. If you just say everyone is the same and it's all rubbish, we all do seclusion and restraint, we all do poor care, then everyone goes, oh, well, that's all we can expect. You go, hang on a second, down the road there. Now, I tell you, the rest of medicine and in health, this happens all the time. If the hospital up the road here does heart transplant, but somebody else doesn't, if, the, if New South Wales has heart transplant and Victoria doesn't, guess what? There's heart transplant in Victoria tomorrow. If the outcomes from surgery in the hospital behind me, Prince Alfred, are much worse than the one down the road from St Vincent's, whoo, the doctors in Prince Alfred aren't waiting to, for the National Health Minister to do something. They're fixing it. They're going, what are they doing? Why are we doing that? What have they got? Because we actually want to do better but we, and we'll, we'll deal with those things we can deal with. Now, the second bit of I'm, I'm creating rather new, so that's creating competition through excellence. And in, in the short term, it makes one better than the other, right? It creates a sort of inequity, but it's actually dragging everybody up. It's not keeping everyone down. It's not actually punching down. It's not keeping everyone down. It's actually drawing up through best examples. I mean, Pat McGorry and his colleagues did this for worldwide by establishing their early psychosis centres in Melbourne, and they have transformed that worldwide by setting up one place in a, in a dodgy old bunch of huts in the back, in the back of northwestern Melbourne, world-leading example, where they could take people, prime ministers, governor-generals, families, and have people go, this is what best care looks like which is what has exactly happened with heart transplant, liver transplant, everything else in Australia. We didn't have those things. And then when we had them, we went, oh. In fact, we tried to keep them out because they cost money and they're very hard. We shouldn't do them until some people went, you know what, we're doing it. And we're going to go ahead and when we got it, people can see what it looks like and this happens all the time. My other odd thing that I say to people all the time is, as this sounds really odd, I don't really care about who gets well. I care about who does not get well or who gets worse. We don't have a lot of tests up front that necessarily tell us who will benefit the most from the treatments that we've got. But we do have this thing you were alluding to earlier about tracking people, okay? We need to very quick. if you come into our system for healthcare, we need to find out very quickly if we're not helping or you're getting worse. And we need to find out why what we generically said, take this medication, do that psychological therapy, isn't working. And do it quickly and not say, oh, this is bad luck because it works for 60% of people, works for 40% of people. Well, that's just bad luck. You'll just have to, you know, carry on and go, no, no, no. Wrong focus. We Wrong focus. Wrong focus. We've got to get those people for whom the first off whatever didn't. Now, I say this because obviously I know a lot of our systems and a lot of work I've been involved in, evaluating headspace, involving evaluating general practice, primary care. A lot of people come into a system and don't improve or get worse. So my analogies with cancer, what I think that reflects is they never got the treatment in the first place. They got a diagnosis. They got an awareness. They did the right thing. 
they came to us. So I must say the most distressing parts of my life are the times that I've sat with families, parents of kids who've killed themselves. And those parents have pleaded, what more could we have done? To which I've often said to them, I'm sure there's nothing more that you could have done. They've taken their kids to care. And I said to them, the real question is, what more could we have done? Did we, the system, do everything that we could have done to assist what was a life-threatening situation? These are not trivial situations. These are not kids who are just having a bad hair day. These are not a whinging generation. There's a lot of criticism of young people. They all complain too this much. Imagine if they grew up during the war. Imagine if they grew up during the Depression. Imagine if they were in the Ukraine, you know. Imagine if you grew up during the age of social media and competition. So these kind of things, just really unhelpful, sort of dumping down, sort of punching down on the younger generation, just really unhelpful. At the health system level, as well as at the wider social level, the serious question, as we see rates of self-harm, we see rates of suicide again in young people, often denied, I must say, by many figures that's actually happening. Oh, no, it's not there. You go, well, what about this chart? Oh, yeah, it's there, but it's not there. It's not there. If we, if we mix it up with all the other bits of all the things, it's not there. Okay, yes, it is there. So let's just see it's there. We've seen actually the head of the National Institutes of Mental Health, Josh Gordon, in the United States just in the last two weeks go, ah, look, that youth problem, it really is there. <laughs> so thank God. At least one national mental health leader internationally is going, um, we probably need to take more notice of this. And it probably has been going bad for about the last 10 years. So we you know, like, we don't really understand why, but that isn't the question also. The question is, what do we do? Like, you know, we're, we're not going to spend, I could spend the next um, 30 years if I live that long, in sociological analysis of what happened during the COVID period and the pre-COVID period. I could write a great book about it probably. Wouldn't do anyone any good. Usually, and sure someone will. <laughs> oh, look, I'm from the university sector. We'll write about it for another 100 years. The real question for me is, okay, what are our options? What can we do? What would be likely to have an effect? And we need to be monitoring that in real time, seeing where does it really go? And so the research needs to be very action-orientated. What can be taken to decision-makers? What can others? And that's why I'm involved with the development of sort of simulation models, things in the finance industry that engineering. These are complex systems. They create complex models. And they ask what-if questions. What if we did this? What would be likely to happen? What would be the best investment? And guess what? When Oh, you didn't hurt anybody? You know, they, yeah. you can hypothetically hurt a system. You can see unintended consequences. If you just simply made some care better for some, would you hurt more than you helped? If you just had more awareness campaigns, would you hurt more than you helped? If you just did more and more open doors, more and more headspaces, more and more GP surgeries without providing the actual care behind the door, would that help or harm? Would it waste resources? Would it, you know, it's a really... Hard questions, questions we need to, and questions decision makers need to go, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to just have another press release for another $10,000 program or another awareness thing or another small clinic. What are the big things that would really make a difference? One of which is coordination of care, and I would argue through digital technologies. Another, another is rapid access to specialist care, meaning treatments that work. I did a great study, uh, College of GPs, many, many years ago. I used to be friends with the College of GPs. It was a long time ago. And my mother made us think about why do people come to general practice? What are they looking for? And it was really interesting because they split into two groups. This might surprise you, men and women. The women said, when we get distressed, we start to drink a bit too much. We talk to our friends. We talk about our friends. It doesn't get better. I've spoken to all my friends. And by the time I get to the general practitioner, I don't need another friend. <laughs> to talk to about my friends, I need the doctor to do something, okay? 
kind of interesting. Like they'd done all that social stuff beforehand. The men, the men are hilarious. I just drank more and then I got sick and then she left and I lost my job. Uh, can you help? To which the doctor said, the doctor said, you should drink less. <laughs> you know. And, oh, well, you're depressed now because you've lost a job and your wife left. And then you get the wife or the partner in and it goes, actually, he was depressed for five years beforehand. That's why, you know. So, like, you know, just because the doctor joined the story now didn't mean the problem started now and the simple narrative the doctor had was not the full explanation. They needed the healthcare system to understand the complexity, the time sequence, where they were joining the story and to take effective action, not to engage in watchful waiting. I don't know if you've had this. Oh, look, if it gets worse, come back. If it gets worse, come back. And it says to young people all the time. I had a, 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 a shift the emphasis for young people, a man my age who after I think about a decade of his wife harassing him to see the doctor about the depression, went to a doctor, general practitioner, who said, oh, we don't do that. So we don't, we don't do what? Oh, we don't do that mental health stuff. We don't do those referrals. <laughs> mental health care plan. But what? Oh, we just choose. We just choose. I said, what else, what else do they choose not to do? Diabetes, asthma, like heart disease? Yeah. You're supposed to be the point of access, the first point, the case manager, the consolidator, the educator. So I think when we look at a lot of the mental health problems we have at the moment, we've got to look at what happens when people hits the system. Then what do they receive care that actually, do they improve? What proportion actually improve? Who doesn't improve? And if they didn't improve or they got worse, was in part that they never received interventions that would be likely. And those interventions are broad. They're not simply clinical. They're not simply medical. They're psychosocial. The broad range of things that would be helpful engaging and good engaging families and others, relationships, all sorts of stuff that would be likely to improve the situation. Guess what we do? In cancer, we do all that. We can all that. Oh, in heart disease, my personal favourite, obviously family favourite. In heart disease, the National Heart Foundation, my dad was involved in setting up the National Heart Foundation. I used to walk around the streets asking, as a kid, asking for money to give to the National Heart Foundation. Oh, my gosh. Did you have a bell? Oh, yeah. <laughs> little red hat and everything, little bucket. People loved it, you know. Because a lot of men, well, people cared at the time. A lot of men, like a lot of men that I'm an only age, dropped dead. I spent a lot of my career as a young doctor with blokes about my age in emergency departments who had dropped dead or almost dropped dead. And if you look in the in the 40 years since then, right, or in the 50 years since I was walking around the street carrying the bucket. I don't, I don't know math. I, I, I can't do that calculation. All right, in that, in that intervening period, the National Heart Foundation for Australia, for Australia the Heart Foundation, has these marvellous charts about the declining death rates in men my age, and they just update them all the time. And guess what? At this rate, I could live to be 130, you know, because actually it just gets better and better because they just keep improving the situation all the time. Well, it's like roads, right? Like the, you know, the constant improvement on roads and road services is because they're addressing the issues that are there. They're addressing the black spots. They're addressing the erosion they're addressing more lanes needed for traffic they're meeting the needs where the needs are and the the death toll has gone down exponentially to that being you know under 500 a year i think it's around 200 and by doing many th- and by doing many things road safety is a good example you can do many things road safety you don't just to to use the analogy often use also for those who are in the finance business it's compound interest the cancer doctors know you only need to improve the situation by 2 to 3% per year. You do a whole lot of little things that add up and it compounds. And you do it every year. You don't just do it 
Julia Gillard did in two, well, Julia Gillard did in 2012 and then, you know, somebody did something in 2019 and then we're very hopeful that Mark Butler will do something in 2023, you know. And I could tell you, I think, I can tell you the years in my life in the last 25 years I've been in national mental health. The good years, there was a good year. 2001 was a good year. 2007 was a good year. 2012 was a good year. I'm sorry, but are you listing wine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say great vintages have been few and far between, few and far between. But that isn't how you get big change. You get big change by 2 to 3% every year. And that's what Julia Gillard, when she put that on the commission we were on, that's what she said. I want annual reporting. I want to see compound interest over 10 years. I want, to know, I want to know which ones to stop because they're low value and when opportunity comes for high value to shift it there. Hard business, hard business. Anyway, so overall, Sam, this is the world that I've been in. So now I'd like to see, pointed out by my children, now my grandchildren, in, in your lifetime, rather than saying the same thing every 10 years, <laughs> are we going anywhere? I'd say yes, on the upside, awareness, Awareness, capacity to have a discussion, community engagement. The community really cares. And if there's any young people or other people out there who think we don't care, we do care. We in Australia and many of the much of the developed world were so stuck in our mid-20th century way of doing things that we're going to get left behind. Here's the good news. You're going to get left behind. But what's happening in South America, what's happening in Asia Pacific, what's happening elsewhere, because they're going to go to technology, they're going to serious, they're going to use specialists differently. And guess what? They really care about their mental health and young people and and they care, some of them even care about old people, which is really nice. And they aren't going to stick all their money in big bricks and mortars in hospitals. They're going to use the professionals they've got, but they're also going to engage people in their own care. They're going to engage families and communities. I hope, through the sort of the mechanisms we're talking about, they're going to be much more responsive to what those people are saying and that the research, they're just finally to say, we have new research tools. We do have rapidly advancing tools to understand they're very complicated mechanics. I think if my dad came back these days, he might have a bit of a different point of view. But actually, you now got a few of that stuff that makes it more fun to try and understand what is so complex, but it makes us so human. And when it goes wrong, when it breaks down, what we can do about it to be most effective. It reminds me of a conversation. I had uh, the brilliant opportunity to speak with well, she was the world first, but she was also the in the UK, the UK's first minister for loneliness. And while the UK government can often be brought under scrutiny and, and like any government do things that aren't necessarily seen as good for the people, the minister for loneliness and that role that's continued on outside of the Theresa May government investigated and saw that the largest population for loneliness was young people. And then the second largest was older people. And the way that they wanted to address that or they saw the need to address that was through building up community and understanding and belonging. Absolutely. Very glad you finally, finally emphasise that. People think loneliness is about old people. Old people, many old people are quite happy being on their own occasion as long as they're connected and as long as the grandkids and others stay in contact and zoom in. Loneliness and social disconnection, to go back to that really big social factor, social disconnection is much more profound amongst young people, particularly in the post-school, particularly in the 18 to 30 age group. Most connected and most lonely. That's right. Most connected but the most disconnected. Where, you know, what's great about mental health, it's a human connection. It's a social group business. What a way to finish. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining me and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for the opportunity.